0: This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. With all that being said, please open in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter. If you do not have a Bible with you, um, You can download an app pretty easily to get it on your phone, or we have uh, physical copies of the Bible, uh, which I do think there is a benefit to having a physical copy of the Bible with you, and so we actually have some on the back table, and on the tables on your way out, and so please grab one of them uh, on us. And so, what uh, what we typically do as a church is we pick one book of the Bible, and we make our way through it kind of section by section. We do this because we believe Jesus when he said that the Bible is the divine revelation of God. And so this is not just a book. This is is God speaking to us and addressing us. And since this is God addressing us, we want to let God set the agenda for us. And so I don't just pick topics and and see what I can get to to fit into that particular topic. No, we pick books and allow God to address the topics that that we look at. Um, And so what happens when we do that sometimes is sometimes we're taken to places that we might not rather go. Uh, Sometimes we're taken to things that might be even culturally controversial. But we lean into these things because we believe that Jesus' way is best. And our mission as a church is to make, mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Someone who is learning and living according to his ways. And so we want to see all that he has to say. One of the main themes that we've been seeing in 1 Peter is that followers of Jesus, his disciples, we live here on earth as exiles. He is not from here, and so those who follow him, we also are not to think of ourselves as from here. Like ambassadors in a foreign land, we are here in this world to represent Jesus, but this is not where we're going to live forever. One day we'll go home to be with him. And so because we're only temporary residents, because we are exiles, those who are away from our true home, this is meant to affect how we live in this place. We are to live differently than those who would identify as being from here. And so the church, those, this, this gathering of disciples of Jesus that we are, we're meant to be a countercultural movement. We live and act differently, not because we're trying to be weird, but because we want to make a difference in the world for Jesus. And the way we make a difference is by following our Savior who is different and believing in what he can do. This past few weeks, we've been in a section of the letter where we've been seeing how we are to relate to government differently, how we are to relate to those who treat us wrongly differently And today, as we come to 1 Peter chapter 3 and go through verses 1 through 7, we're going to see how Jesus wants to relate in marriage differently. Now, I know as soon as I say that word marriage, that can hit different people in different ways. In this broken world, marriages are not always a place of joy, but sometimes can be a place of pain, be a place where there is tension, can bring up memories that elicit a lot of sadness. Also, for some, marriage is not something that you've experienced. And so it's like, man, does this has nothing to do with me today? Why why, did I show up? Well, while hearing about marriage can affect us in different ways, as we let God set the agenda for us, I do believe there's a reason he has us in this section today, whether you are married or not, and whether your experience of marriage has been good or not. There's a reason God wants to speak to us about what his vision is for marriage, because through this, he really wants to show us something that is, is not just about marriage. He wants to show us to show something about his great love and what that means for us. And so whether you have a great marriage or a struggling marriage or no marriage, there's something beautiful today in this text that God wants to show us about himself. And so I've been telling this morning's sermon, God's Good Design for Countercultural Marriages. We are exiles who live out God's good design for counter-cultural marriages. Let's read together in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through and let's allow God to address us. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Would you bear your heads with me now in a word of prayer? God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. God, I pray you would come, that you would open the ears of our hearts to hear what you have to say. God, I believe there is much good and beauty in what we just heard, and yet I know that often, Lord, this topic can come in the context of pain. And so God, I do just pray, God, that you would lift the eyes of our souls to look to you, and that our hearts be blessed by what we see. May, may we leave here today with a little bit more joy in Jesus, and as we experience greater joy in you, may you receive even more glory from us. We praise the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. To help us see what God is saying here, I want to take us through four things that this text is showing us. We're going to see Jesus' way of love. Then we're going to see how wives are to show Jesus' love. Then we're going to see how husbands are to show Jesus' love. And then finally, we're going to see how we actually can do that. How we actually can do that. So first, we begin by seeing Jesus' way of love. Now, you may be thinking, why are we talking about Jesus? He is not mentioned in these verses at all. Why are we starting with Jesus' way of love? Well, I would say he is actually talked about in these verses a lot. If you notice, both verse 1 and verse 7 start with the exact same word. They both start with the same word, likewise. Likewise. Likewise is a comparative word. It's saying this is likewise, like that. It's comparing two different things. And, and so what is being compared to here? What, what are these two words that both husband and wives, what are they being referred to? Well, in order to see that, we have to look back at what came before. And so we see that there is an example that they are being referred to, and we see this example in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ's offer suffered suffer for you, leaving you an example. So, you might follow in his steps. As we saw last week, the rest of chapter two is all about what Jesus did for us out of his great love for us. And it's in that context that chapter three begins by saying, likewise. Both husbands and wives are being told that how we are to relate to one another is meant to be informed by how Jesus has related to us. How has Jesus related to us? Again, look at chapter 2, verse 24 gives a beautiful and concise statement of how Jesus has loved us. Verse 24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Jesus' love for us came at the cost of His own life. Our sin against God deserved the punishment of God, but even though we do the crime, Jesus came to do the time. He he came and He suffered for our sins. It was not His sins that He died for on the cross. It was was our sins that were put on Him on that cursed tree. And so as His disciple John writes in 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big Bible word that means that Jesus' death has fully satisfied the demands of God's justice. There is no more judgment left for us to face because Jesus took it all in our place. He has propitiated, he has satisfied the just demands of God for our sins. And God says, in this is love meaning this is what love looks like and not just speaking out Jesus's love it's it's what the heavenly father's love looks like there's one god this god exists in three persons father son and holy spirit so we call the trinity and in the trying being of god it's the father who directs and the son who willingly responds the son is no different from the father in value dignity or glory but the son chooses to follow the father's leadership and so in love the father sent the son and in love the son willingly went and submitted himself to the father's will as he gave his life for ours and so Jesus's way of love is not self-love that holds on to its own rights it's not love that looks out for, for itself, that does what's best by me, that, that, that exists for finding fulfillment for me. No, Jesus came, and at the cost of himself, his love is a self-giving love. And we're being told that the self-giving love of Jesus is meant to be likewise how both husbands and wives are to relate to one another. In other words, his love is meant to be shown through our love if we're married. His love is to be our love. His self-giving love is to be our self-giving love. In college, I had one drawing class. Uh, It was the only class I actually dropped because had I continued, it would have been the only class that I failed. Um, I am I am a terrible artist. And so, uh, and I found that out in the very first day. Because the very first day, what they did was they took this masterpiece, and I don't even know the name of it because, like, I'm not into art. But it was a masterpiece they put it in the middle of the of, of the room, and you had to, like, trace out a copy of it, right? And so I'm like trying to trace something out and I'm just looking at this and it's, it's like you can't even tell it's not even close to what's in the middle there like not, not, not even close but the person next to me who I was looking over the shoulder trying to cheat um, they, they actually were doing good they actually were, get it, were getting it going it's like okay it wasn't exactly like the masterpiece but I could tell from the copy they were making what they were trying to draw it was definitely less it wasn't a masterpiece but it showed something of the masterpiece that's what God is setting us up for here God's love is the masterpiece, and we can never fully replicate it. But we are meant to, by his grace, seek to trace it onto our lives. We look to Jesus, and we see his way of love, and then we seek to love one another as we have been loved by him, which is why this is an important message for everyone to hear, not just married people. Because while this is going to address the unique ways that a wife and a husband are to relate to one another, Uh, The point is that the marriage relationship is meant to point to Jesus. Like, marriage is great, but it's just a copy. And so this passage is really meant to direct our eyes to the masterpiece of God's love in Jesus. So as we go through the role of wife and the role of husband, if you're not a wife and not a husband, please don't check out. Because God has something really sweet that he wants to show you about himself. And so let's get into how wives are to show the love of Jesus. We're going to start here. Uh, because this is where the passage starts. It starts by saying in verse 1, likewise wives, again, likewise referring to Jesus. How do wives show the love of Jesus? It says, be subject to your own husbands. Now, I want to immediately say what this text is not saying, uh, because this verse can very easily uh, be misunderstood, and very sadly has been used to uh, really hurt women in ways that uh, are outrageous to God. And so uh, I want to say first, this is not saying that every woman needs to be subject to every man because women are somehow inferior to men. Not at all. That's not what this text says. It says wife to husband, not woman to man. There are very particular parameters that are being given here. And even within those particular parameters, this does not mean that a husband has the right to dominate his wife. Not whatsoever. Because we cannot read this text in isolation from the rest of the Bible. And so Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says, speaking to Christians, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We'll look at what submission means more in a minute, but as we do so, let's understand that there's something that the spirit of submission that is meant to be reflected in every char- Christian's character, whether male or female, because followers of Jesus are those who know how to submit like Jesus has submitted. And so that's, that's, we need to, to have that understanding. Um, And this also clearly can't mean anything about inferiority, because verse uh, 7 clearly says that wives are co-heirs of grace with their husbands. They're co-heirs, not not less heirs, but co, meaning equal heirs of grace. Now we read that and we're like, okay, great. We need to understand, Peter just dropped a bomb in his culture. You want to talk about a shocking statement? In the ancient world, wives being called co heirs would have been about as countercultural as you could get. In ancient Rome, women were considered, in many ways, social non persons, useful only for making political alliances and for producing sons. They were not allowed to be heirs of anything. Inheritance passed down from son to son, or if there was no son, it would go to a cousin or whatever male relative was closest. And into that injustice, God speaks and says, no, in my kingdom, there's no just male to male. No, wives are equal heirs. They do receive the inheritance that Christ gives. They receive it equally just as their husbands. There's no distinction in value. Everything that Jesus gives, He gives equally to everyone who believes in Him. And so in a culture that devalued Women in horrible ways, the way of Jesus elevated them and dignified them. And so being subject cannot mean inferiority or inequality because that denies uh, husbands and wives being co-heirs in Christ. Nor is this in any way denying uh, the right of a wife to express her own will. It actually does the exact opposite and dignifies the wife's will. God is calling the wife to do something. What does that imply? She has the will to do it. And she has the will to follow through on what God says. She has the ability to make the choice. And in this choice, the wife models Jesus. Jesus as the co-eternal, co-glorious, fully equally person of the Trinity. Jesus is fully free. And he freely chooses to follow the Father's lead. And so I want to be very clear that any husband who would use this passage to assert his right to exert his will over his wife and to demand that she do what he says, any husband who forces his wife to follow his lead and creates a power imbalance in their marriage is denying his wife's personhood and abusing her rights as a co-heir in Christ. And I want to speak strongly about that because this passage can be and often has been used to justify horrific abuse. And that is not at all what it should do. The father does not abuse the son. And so any husband who is using, seeking to demand that their wife follow them is saying something false about God and will have to answer to God for it. I also want to say this, that I am very sadly aware then in this broken world, anytime I'm speaking, there's potential that I'm speaking to women who right now even might be in an abusive relationship. And if that is you, I want you to know two things. First of all, one, your abuse is wrong. Because you are loved and valued by God. And he will hold your abuser to account. The Lord promises in his word, vengeance is mine. There is no injustice experienced that God lets go unpunished. Your pain matters to him, and he will do something about it. Second, I want you to know that we want to help you and support you in any way that we can. Please reach out. If you're in an abusive situation, please reach out to one of the pastors here. We sadly are not unfamiliar with these things. There are other women that we've had to help through abusive relationships. Help get out of abusive relationships. You are not a love. Or if you do not feel comfortable reaching out to a pastor, there are many women here, some in leadership and some who are just godly members that I know would love to speak with you and encourage you and help you. Again, please reach out. This passage is not all speaking about women's woman's inferiority. and should not in any way be used to justify patriarchal male dominance. What God is saying here is really defined through the example that he gives in verses 5 through 6. He, he says what it means to be subject. He says, this is how, verse 5, holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, there's only one place in the Bible where Sarah is recorded as calling Abraham Lord. It's Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. What's really interesting, she actually doesn't say that directly to Abraham. Uh, what happens is that she overhears the promise that God makes that, to Abraham, that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child, and she, she says, shall I and my Lord, she says this to herself, shall I my Lord really have that pleasure? In other words, can that really be possible? But even as she is wondering out loud, she is showing respect to her husband and speaking about him in a respectful way. She doesn't say, how can I, and this washed up old geezer, like, 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 no, she uses a term of respect to speak about her husband. And the term of respect she uses shows that she's willing to follow his lead. And then what happens in that story is that she uses her strength to help her husband be obedient to God. Previously, they had doubted the promise of God in Genesis chapter 16, and he had gone to try to have a child with promise with someone else. And God says, no, 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 you're not doing it right. It needs to come through Sarah. And so in Genesis 18, Sarah says, okay, let's make this happen. Let's believe what God can do. And as they work together, as they work together, they see God's promise come true. And so Strong's Greek Dictionary, which is like Webster's Dictionary for ancient Greek, Strong says the word for subject and submit, which is both uh, you know conjugates of the same word. This is what this word means. It's not what we might typically think of it. This is what this word means. It's it's a Greek military term, meaning to arrange troops, divisions, in a military fashion, under the command of a leader. In a non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. And so, in military terms it's about adding the strength of more troops. It's saying we need to take this hill, so let's add some strength to go defeat that enemy. In non-military terms, it's about taking up responsibility. It's about it's about I'm going to I'm going to help carry this burden. We need to pick this burden up, and so let's cooperate together because two are stronger than one. And so Dr. Julie Slattery and an excellent book on uh, the call of a wife, says this, one of the best words to describe the spirit of submission is empower. To empower means to promote the self-actualization or influence of. In essence, a woman empowers her husband when she uses her influence and strength to help him become a stronger, more confident and godly person. And so let's be very, very clear. Submission is not about being weak. It's about adding strength. Jesus' submission to the Father was not a sign of His weakness, but a sign of His greatness. The Father had a plan for our salvation, and as Jesus willingly chose to give Himself in love to accomplish the Father's uh, plan of salvation, that, that, that was how that, that, that plan came into being. It was through the strength of the Son being willing to submit. God said, let's take this hill. Let's go defeat sin and Satan. And Jesus willingly followed the father's lead and went up the hill called Calvary and died in our place. And so, friend, you need to know today that you've been willingly loved by Jesus. He didn't have to. He wanted to. He loves to love you. And so he willingly submitted himself to the Father's lead to accomplish our salvation. So I don't know if you've ever felt loved by someone before, but you need to know today that you are loved by Jesus. Willingly. And wives, as you willingly choose to add your strengths to your husband, as you willingly follow his leadership, you are in this way modeling the willing love of Jesus. And notice that the goal Jesus, God gives for, for wives acting in this way. As he says, be subject to your own husbands, meaning be willingly follow their lead in a respectful manner. Watch. It says that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. You see what he's saying? He said, this is what all wives are called to do. But for those who are married to non-Christians, there's a particular opportunity for you in doing this. And Peter said this because what was happening in the early church is that There was actually a lot of women becoming Christians. Uh, Ancient uh, church records, uh, membership roles, actually, it was usually around 70-30 as far as a male-to-female ratio, or excuse me, female-to-male ratio, with with female being the more. Um, And and that's really because the the way of Jesus really dignified women in a way that that, that was never seen before in that ancient culture. And so women were flocking to follow Christ. Uh, Women were flocking to follow Christ. But the conversion of a woman was actually seen as a very real threat to the social order of the day. Theologian and commentator Karen Jobes helps us understand, as she writes this, In Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and would worship the gods of her own husband. And so the husband in society would perceive the wife's worship of Jesus as rebellion. If the wife persisted in her new religion to the extent uh, that others outside the household learned of it, the husband would feel uh, embarrassment and suffer criticism for not properly managing his household. This could seriously damage his social standing, even to the point of disqualifying him from certain honors and offices. Also, the wife's attendance at Christian worship would provide opportunity for her to have fellowship with other Christians who were possibly not her husband's friends. And so for a wife to convert to Christianity was seen as very disrespectful and threatening to her husband. But what God is saying here is that when these wives would choose to submit themselves to respecting and following even their unbelieving husband's lead, then if their husband is an unbeliever, how the wife is respecting him could be something that God uses to reach him. And again, there is a strength that comes from this. Once more, Dr. Julie Slattery says Peter is telling these wives how to be powerful in winning their husbands over not how to be weak in letting them do whatever they want. Right? This is why God immediately then goes in verse 3 to give a, a vision for women pursuing the beauty of their character, which is even more important than the beauty of external uh, appearance. That's what's going on in verse 3 when it says, don't let your adorning be external. And it gives some examples of what external adorning might look like, the braiding of hair or jewelry. Notice it's, saying, it's, not, saying, it's not saying you can't do that, it's just saying, don't let that be what's most attractive about you. Don't don't let that be what, what defines you. It's not it's not that you don't have to be st- uh, stylish, that you should just be this, some kind of, you know, frumpy looking person. No, what it's saying is that what should matter most to you is not showing off your bling, but showing off Jesus. What, matter, what should matter most to you is not how much Gucci you can put on you, but how much Jesus you have in you. Right, that, that That's what he's saying. And this really comes out in verse four as he says, particularly the kind of character, the kind of hidden person to show off is that of being a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentleness refers to a soft touch, a carefulness in how you care. A quiet spirit doesn't mean that you're quiet, it's actually a similar phrase is used lowly in heart. It's speaking to a calmness. Think about a calm and quiet sea. What are you describing? You're describing a peaceful situation. Saying there there should be a character that that wives exemplify being a peaceful person. These things taken together are really giving a picture of someone who, when they come into a situation, they they don't make matters worse. They don't pour gasoline onto a fire. They know how to bring some water. They know how to promote peace. And in doing so, this is again, is in no way describing a weak or timid person. You know, it actually takes a lot of strength to be gentle and to have a quiet spirit. If you hand me something that's too heavy for me to hold, I can't be gentle with it. I'm just going to drop it and it'll break. In order to be gentle with something, you have to be able to carry it and handle it and have the strength to handle it carefully as you should. And so you know who is described as the preeminent example of having a gentle and quiet spirit, having the strength to be able to do that? Jesus. That's how he describes himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He says, "I am gentle and lowly in heart, and in me you will find rest for your souls." So Jesus is saying He is like. He's saying, "Come to me, and I can give you peace." Why? Because I'm strong enough to be gentle with whatever you're going to ask me to carry. Jesus doesn't expect us to always have it together, but to come to him and to let him hold us together. And he holds us together gently and carefully. He brings us his peace. And wives are being called to model Jesus' strengths by loving their husbands in this way. Now, certainly that doesn't mean that husbands aren't also to do this. Of course we are. Every Christian is called to model the character of Christ but there's a particular way in the marriage relationship that wives are to pursue the strength of modeling Jesus' submissive, gentle, and calming love. So that, that's how wives show the love of Jesus. Now let's talk, you about how husbands are to show the love of Jesus. Verse 7 says, likewise, again, referring back to Jesus, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. My parents tell a funny story about me when I was five or six. I don't remember it, but I don't think my parents are liars, and so I assume it's true. They tell a funny story where my sister one day comes bursting into the room. I have an older sister and a younger sister, but this was my older sister. And she comes bursting into the room in tears um, saying, My brother Jeff is so mean. He is the worst brother ever. Um, now I would actually probably agree with her. I wasn't that great a brother growing up. But in this situation, apparently I come in just looking a little dazed and confused. And so they ask me, Jeff, like, what happened? What's, can you tell us what's going on? And I'm just like, I don't know. She drew a picture. I said her picture was nice. And then she got angry. And my sister said, yes, that's the problem. What he should have said is that that was the best picture he's ever seen in his entire life. That's what I would have said. And apparently I just leave and say, I just don't understand. I just don't understand, you know? Now, as a five-year-old or six-year-old, I'm actually, I think it's okay that I didn't understand my sister in that moment. and. She might be listening to this, so, uh, Julie, I still don't understand you sometimes. but. But I am called to understand my wife. I am called to understand my wife. It is the husband's responsibility to continually seek to know out this person that God has brought you to be with. It's the husband's responsibility to know how she is wired, what makes her tick, what's on her mind, what's on her heart. This is not just a general understanding of women in general, but a particular knowledge of the particular person that God has particularly brought to you. And we are called, doesn't notice, we are called to live with our wives in such a way, meaning that we don't just understand her and like, okay, I've got her figured out, I kind of know what that's about. No, no, this is, this is being present and never going into passive mode. This is being engaged with how she is on a daily basis, both spiritually and emotionally this is laying out a vision to seek to know your wife as one of your highest goals to orient yourself to how she is oriented to seek to know her as intimately as possible as one person possibly can and in doing so we show honor to her notice that connection it makes for us it says live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel Now, weaker here is not a sign of inferiority again, but it's just the general truism that physically speaking, men are usually stronger than women. And so what this is saying is, husbands, don't use your physical strength to dominate or intimidate, but instead use it to show honor. And also the word here for for weak actually can also mean mean precious, very special, Uh, which actually I think would make a lot of sense since it's tied to honor. Think about it this way. This analogy has limitations, but but I hope it kind of helps paint the picture of what this is saying. If you had one of those, you know, plastic red Solo cups, like that's not something that's very precious. You can drop it, you can kick it, you can step on it, you can throw it, you easily discard it. No big deal. It's very common. It's very easy to get another one. But if it was a crystal wine glass, you would handle that a lot differently, wouldn't you? Because it is valuable. It is precious. You wouldn't treat it casually, but instead care for it carefully. Especially if it was given to you by someone that you loved. And so I have a, actually I have a gold watch at home that was passed down to me from my great-grandfather. It's precious to me both because it is valuable, but also because of who it comes from. It's not just any watch. It's the watch he gave me. And so to treat it casually would not only be to dishonor the value of the watch itself, but also the one who gave me the watch. And so God makes the connection here for us. At the end of this verse, he says, treat your wives with honors. Why? So your praise may not be hindered. Why is he making that connection? He's saying, husbands, your wives are not just your wives. They They are God's daughters. They come from him. Not like an object, uh, you know, like a crystal glass or, or a watch. That's where the analogy breaks down. They're not objects. They're God's beloved child. And so they are valuable and precious to him. And so, husbands, what this is telling us is that if we don't treat our wives with honor, if we don't take time to patiently, carefully, and intentionally seek to understand them, we can't expect to be on good speaking terms with their dad. Notice that both husbands and wives are given a calling, but it's the husband who's also given a warning. I think that's because the call for husbands to lead in the home does present a real danger for the husband to abuse their leadership. And so God immediately puts a warning out there. Be careful, God is saying. You need to remember, you might be the head of your home, but I'm the head of you, and you will answer to me for how you care for her. Guys, that doesn't drive us to our knees. I don't know what else will. I don't know what else will. We need to understand that in this call for 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 men to to show the loving leadership of Jesus. This is a call to not be dominant. This is a call to not be domineering. It's also the call that that that's not it's not a call to be passive. I think husbands we abuse our leadership when we are too heavy-handed and also when we're just no-handed. And, and, and passive. Let, let, let's remember what the first sin of man was. It was the very first sin of man? It was Adam sitting by and doing nothing as Satan tempted his wife Eve. She's getting tempted and he's checked out. I'm guessing he probably was just scrolling his smartphone looking down at that instead of understanding her. Adam's first sin was not what he did, but what he didn't do. He was not spiritually attuned to what was going on in his wife now eve as her own person is also held responsible for her choice to sin she didn't have to right there are plenty of examples in the bible for wives stepping up against their husband's bad leadership right and so i think about like sephora stepping up against moses or abigail standing up to nabal eve could have stood up and like hey adam pay attention phone down this is not a good situation what's going on right she she wasn't empowering him in that moment she wasn't helping Uh, and so she's held responsible for that but but God charged Adam to be the leader. And so actually God, even though Eve took the fruit, God speaks to Adam first. Because it was his failure that ultimately led to that moment. It was his passivity and his leadership that was an abuse of of the leadership role that God had given him. As husbands, we are called to understand our wives. It is our job to make them feel valued and known. And to not be dominant in our leadership or to abdicate our leadership, to not overbear and to not be withdrawn. But in, and in this, we model the love of Jesus. And how does Jesus love us? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says that Jesus sympathizes with us. He understands us. Maybe you've been seeing those commercials out there. He gets us. I think it's true. Jesus does. He, he understands us. He's with us in an understanding way. And what does he do? He leads us by laying down his life for our good. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesians, kind of further fleshing out, I think, what Peter is saying here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, the way Jesus led us is by laying down his life for us, so that we could be led out of our sin. And so husbands, we are called to lay down our lives, to lay down our preferences, to lay down our comforts, and to take up our wife's good as our top priority, even if that comes at a personal cost. And so as we see, there's there's the relationship is being laid out here. We're both being referred to to Jesus. The wife is willingly choosing, like Jesus, to give her strength, her help to her husband as he leads. And the husband is like Jesus, leading by pressing back into his wife and seeking to serve her good. And so this is a marriage of equals, who aren't pulling in two different directions, but are aligned for the one purpose of glorifying God. And in this, this is a very countercultural message. I looked up the top ten marriage books, and one of the major themes in them is that in order to have a successful marriage, apparently you need to know how to compromise. You need to know how to come up with uh, 50-50 decisions. Friends, the vision that God's given us for marriage here is not a 50-50 marriage. It's not a marriage of compromise. Because you know what happens in compromise? Everyone loses something. This is a a vision of marriage where there's no loss. God's vision for both the husband and wife, is not a 50-50. It's a 100% of giving themselves to modeling the love of Jesus in the differing ways that God has called us to. Now, I don't know about you, but as we come to the end of this sermon, I need some help. Because as I look at the example of Jesus, it is so easy for me to see how I'm not like that masterpiece and how clearly I fall short. So let's just close very quickly with our final point, but in some ways probably our most important point. Let's close by looking at how we can relate this way. Verse 5 speaks to women. It says, "For This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Looking at verse 7, it says, Husbands, treat your wives this way. Why? Since they are heirs with you in the grace of life. Notice what both those verses are doing. God is saying, treat your spouse this way. Not by looking to them. And not by just trying really hard to work up this self-giving love in yourself. No, love your spouse by looking to me. Wife, hope in me, Jesus is saying. Husbands, consider the grace of life that you have in me Jesus is saying. Here's the big idea of this text. If you want to kind of take it home with you. It's, it's only when we believe by faith how we have been loved by God will we be finally free to give ourselves fully in love to our spouse. Only when we, have been, when we believe by faith how we have been loved by God will we be finally free to give ourselves fully in love to our spouse. It's by knowing how God has loved us. That we are empowered to love this person that God has brought to us. And if you think about it, this is how Jesus loved us. He didn't love us because we were always attractive to him. No, when he was on the cross and in agony, he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of history, he stayed on the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them. He loved us not because we are lovely, but because he is loving. And where did his love come from in that moment? It's not for what we are doing. John 15, 9 tells us where that love for Jesus came from. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Jesus' love for us came from the love he knew he had from the Father. And so he gave from what he knew he had been given. And so if you're like me and you consider this passage and you feel a conviction in your soul about how often you fail to model the love of Jesus in the way you should, friends, our takeaway is not to try harder. The only way that we can truly give ourselves to love our spouses is by embracing the lover of our souls. Because of the loving sacrifice of the Son, we can know the extravagant love of the Father in the power of the Spirit. And in the triune love of God, there's enough love for our souls to draw from, to keep ourselves filled forever, and to give ourselves in loving service to our spouses. In other words, 1 John 4.19, we love... Because he first loved us. And so if you're married, your takeaway is this. Fill yourself up with the love of Jesus. That's how we can love one another like Jesus. If you're not married, your takeaway is this. Fill yourself up with the love of Jesus. Because marriage is only meant to be a copy of his masterpiece. And so for all of us, whether we're married or not, we are to keep our eyes on and fill our souls with The masterpiece of God's love in Jesus. His willing, gentle, peace-bringing, understanding, sympathetic, and self-sacrificial love. Let's bow our heads in prayer.